Tonight I would like to explore a little bit uh, the area of views, views, views in practice, views and freedom. I think they're a large part of the uh, spiritual path for a large part of, in a way, being a fully conscious, conscientious uh, human being is beginning to question, beginning to investigate, beginning to uncover uh, the views we have. beginning to explore views and also the effects they have in our lives. What, what do we believe? What do we believe about life? What do we believe about that period moving from between birth and death? How are we seeing it? How are we looking at it? So how am I looking at life? Another level, how am I looking at this moment? And how am I looking at my practice? <clears throat> at first this may seem a little abstract and, well, okay. But this has, it turns out this has everything, everything, everything to do with freedom absolutely everything to do with freedom. The way we are looking, the way we are viewing our life, this moment, and our practice. So the Buddha, of course, addresses the the question of view, and he puts what he calls right view. He put that right at the base of his path. The first factor of the path, right view, having that in place. And it's also, in a way, a culmination of the path. goal of the path. So we can uh, uh, talk about view on on just the level of the kind of philosophical or metaphysical opinions or or whatever that we we carry in our life and and, uh, they may be um, completely secular so you know whatever the current ones are uh, death penalty or the euro or some political, you know, whatever. <laughs> and of course, that same uh, range of opinions on what should or shouldn't be com- comes with whatever spiritual path we have. So, uh, Buddha Dharma is full of, uh, you know, people with opinions kind of butting heads, really. And so, views around rebirth or reincarnation or... Uh, the exact nature of the self, whether there is a self or whether there's not a self, what's the place of deep concentration in the path, is it a complete uh, wrong direction or is it really helpful, and so on and so on, what's the actual nature of ultimate reality. (laughs) Small stuff. (laughs) Whether it's secular or religious, we can just see in the world how much argument and war comes out of all this. Different opinions just butting their heads and fighting and fighting about it. And we can look at that and, and we hear this teaching 
don't get attached to views. Don't get attached to views. And it's such a, a wisdom there, such a wisdom. How much war and bloodshed has come from, from this just people having different opinions. And really, when you, if you just go through history, and even nowadays, around really uh, ridiculous things, ridiculous. <clears throat> so don't get attached to views. But even that, you know, to be a little careful. I mean, I, I don't know if it made the news here, but a few years ago, I think it was when Halley's Comet came round again, I think so. There was a, a religious sect in America, and they, they collectively committed suicide. And it was something they, something they thought a spaceship was on the comet or something. They were going to get closer to God or something. And they all wore Nike shoes. Did you hear about that? <laughs> it was big news. <laughs> so, you know, you said don't get attached to views. To me, that's, that's not a helpful view. <laughs> um, and a little, a few months ago, we were, a group of friends were sitting around, and we were, we were actually discussing the nature of ultimate reality, <laughs> as one does. And, um... And I had a certain view, and different people had certain views. And then it seemed to me that what was the sort of, what was, it was, well, how to put it politely, a passion, a, a, a hearty debate. Put it, that's a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it seemed to me that what, what, and it went on for quite a while, actually, if I remember, about a day and a half. <laughs> and, um, not exaggerating. <laughs> and, um, what seemed to me the sort of where people were moving towards was you say this and you say this and you say this and it's all just views and it's all just okay and we can't put one ahead of another and it's all just okay and I didn't feel so comfortable with that afterwards actually and I, I felt like well okay if someone asked Rob you know what's the nature of ultimate reality and, and I said what's the you know what's the real nature the true nature of things and I said ah everything is a big Pink, pink fish called Barbara. <laughs> it's silly, you know, it's silly to accept all views like that. Her name's Brenda. <laughs> um, uh, you know, to, to not throw out our intelligence with this stuff. It, maybe it isn't that all views are completely equal. And we also hear this teaching, and, and in, in, in the Dharma tradition we hear the teaching, right view is no view. And this, this can have a real pull on the heart. It's actually just, we hear, oh, you know, you can feel the relief of that, and the release of that. And there's something in the simplicity and the letting go, right view is no view. And it's like, oh, thank, thank goodness. I don't have to go into all that. But despite the heart pull, again, can we keep bringing our questioning to this? Can we keep, keep that integrity alive? On one level, uh, there is always a view. There is always a view going on. We may or may not realize it, but there is always a view. There is always a way we are seeing what is happening right now. There's a way we are seeing this moment. <coughs> are we aware of the way we are seeing this moment? Most of the time, we're not. So there's always a view and, in Dharma teaching, it's always significant. It's never uh, ineffectual. It's never something that doesn't affect life, affect our feelings, our perceptions. 
So something we, we talked and Catherine talked in her talk uh, last night uh, very beautifully about the self view, and we can see you can see it, can't you? When the when the self story is very strong, what's the view then? I am I am a failure. I'm a lousy meditator. I'm a depressed person. I'm an angry person. I am this. I am that. Or you are this. You are that. And it's self view. Or life is terrible. Life sucks. Life is suffering. Even the Buddha said that. Uh, what's, what, what is the view going on? How strong is it? How strongly is it operating? What is actually going on? Even to say, this is terrible. This situation is terrible. Views like that are very potent. Extremely potent. But even, I would go even a step further and say, I am giving a Dharma talk. I am listening to a Dharma talk. There is a Dharma talk. It's all view. It's all view. It's all a way of seeing what's going on right now. To me, it's quite, it's quite interesting, quite well, interesting to, to wonder what views have we absorbed from the culture. Uh, and I don't, and this really might be in the realm of opinion, but sometimes I wonder, and I'm really saying I wonder, I'm not saying it is one way or another, but if that with, with the sort of <clears throat> movement away from a religious culture that was very strong, say, in medieval times, into our modern secular culture, uh, we, we have replaced a sort of religious feeling and view with a kind of um, almost nihilistic one. I don't know if this is true, I wonder sometimes. And there's a, maybe a prevailing sense in, for a lot of people without even realizing it that actually this life is it. Nothing before, nothing afterwards, complete extinction on death. No real meaning inherent in life. So better try and get as much pleasure as I can, try and avoid as much pain as I can. And maybe that kind of view stemming from a kind of nihilism is actually operating at, uh, at a level that went just below the radar. I was reading in the newspaper the other day, they did a survey, uh, just in terms of views that we get from the culture, uh, they did a survey of, I think it was 10 or 11-year-olds or, or children up to that age or something. And uh, they asked them, what, what, what would you need to be happy? You know, what, what's the most important thing to be happy? The three most popular, I can't remember the order, but the three most popular. Famous, rich, good-looking. You know, where do they get that? So how much are we, what, how much are we absorbing views from the culture, and how how powerful is that influence? So, as I said, the Buddha addressed this question, and, and we might say, actually, if we're, you know, we might say, well, who, who cares what the Buddha said? And that's that's actually fair enough and fine. But he seemed to have said some quite intelligent things, so we might as well at least ask you know, what he did say. <laughs> he says, well, what is right view, he says. Right view is four noble truths. There is suffering. Okay, there is dukkha. This word, I'll, I'll use this word suffering. What it really means is not everything from the range of excruciating physical and existential and emotional mental torment, all the way from that to the most subtlest, subtlest, subtlest uh, sense of unease, dissatisfaction, 
uh, non, not complete freedom. So everything in that range. I just use the word suffering. It's quite a charged word. So he said, there is suffering. Again, he, he didn't say life is suffering, which sometimes gets translated as there is suffering. Second truth. There is cause for suffering. There is a cause for suffering. And the simple cause is when there's grasping, when there's either pushing or pulling. And actually he gives a more, much more complex uh, explanation, but the basic, the shorthand is there's grasping and then the, because there's grasping, there's suffering. Third noble truth, there is a release from this. There is a release and an end of suffering. And fourth, the path that he describes to, uh, to move towards that end. And uh, the path involves right view, right intention, the intention towards loving-kindness, towards compassion, towards renunciation. Uh, I can't remember the order, but uh, right action, right livelihood. You know, how are we in the world? What are we doing with our energy? Right uh, speech, right effort, meaning the, the kind of effort to um, develop what is beautiful and helpful to oneself and others, develop those qualities of mind and heart and to let go of ones that are not so helpful. Right depth of meditation, and, uh, right mindfulness, sorry, and then right depth of meditation. And all this is, is part of the path. These four noble truths. And at first, you know, we, we can hear that and we kind of like, okay, okay. And it seems, you know, maybe a little dry, or whatever, maybe formulistic and stuff. But my, my experience, I think it's the experience of, of many people who... Uh, can travel the path of practice. This this simple sort of formula just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's much much deeper than it, it will seem than the first hearing. And in a way, uh, but of course, for noble truths, it's for ennobling truths to 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 have this view and to take up this view and to to investigate with this view is to ennoble the being to ennoble the being, and it's really that the being and the consciousness, in a way, goes on a journey with these, uh, with these truths. So sometimes uh, we hear Dharma and the, you know, the teachings go on and on and on about suffering, and, uh, and it can get a bit much sometimes, you know. Uh, and it's not just suffering, that's one way of formulating it. Oftentimes the Buddha talked about happiness, I touched on this the other day, and I'd like to, in a way, restate what I said, in a way, just come at a slightly different angle, but you can talk about suffering, the end of suffering, you can talk about what, what brings freedom, what brings happiness, what brings a sense of well-being and nourishment. So in a way, it's just the same question, the, 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 the flip side of, of the same coin. So when, when one asks this, uh, what brings happiness, what brings well-being and nourishment, it's not... Uh, uh, you know, to think, oh, what brings me happiness is, is um, you know, I know that I like chocolate ice cream, whereas as opposed to vanilla. It's not. We're not talking about personal uh, preferences here. We're talking about universal qualities of being that bring uh, well-being, nourishment, happiness. So this this question, what brings happiness, is part of right view. It's very much part of right view. But it's a kind of long-term, long-term view. So happiness in the moment may not be possible. Maybe there's just too much difficult stuff going on. The most we can hope for is a kind of 
um, ease or peace with what's going on. But as a long-term view, building, building what it is that will lead to, to this nourishment, this, this uh, deep sense of well-being. So it's a long-term agenda of practice. And can we, uh, if, you know, happiness is a charged word, can we just admit the possibility that that might be possible in the long term to move towards cultivating the qualities that have happiness as their fruit? It's an interesting word. You know, some, some people really are, they have the kind of personality and being that they really do. Uh, experience ecstasy and bliss and, and over, overflowing joy, you know. And perhaps it's not as uncommon as, as we think. I don't know how common it is, but I actually have no idea what the percentages are. Or anything like that. <laughs> uh, I know one teacher did a survey, but anyway. Um, and some people, they're just, the nervous system is not wired that way. And that's fine, it's completely fine. But I think for everyone, it, there's a possibility of a quiet sense of well-being. Just a quiet sense of happiness. Nothing dramatic, no fireworks. Just that quiet sense of well-being. And again, not all of the time. <clears throat> the Buddha goes into this. What is it that's leading to, to happiness? And he talks in you know, absolute foundation, sila. You know, taking care of how we are with other people, which is, as mentioned, implicit in the Eightfold Path. Really taking care of that and looking into that. Part of what happens as we progress through the path is we actually become more and more sensitive to this realm of sila. More and more sensitive to when we're not uh, acting out of love, out of care and concern. So the other day I was speaking to a friend and she, she was joking and then uh, she was kind of acting like someone being derogatory. So she wasn't even being derogatory, she was just kind of joking that way. And we were just there, and, and it, it suddenly felt really painful. Well, not really painful, but just, just there, were, there was some, mm, that really didn't feel good. And we talked about it. And she, she actually said, oh, well, I remember when I was doing much more practice year, years ago, I would have actually felt that, and now I've become less sensitive. And it, you know, it was fine for her, she was just saying that. But to, to realize that a part of what goes on in meditation practice is sensitivity that we develop to sila, to how we are and what we're putting out into the world, and it's hugely important. So the Buddha talks about what, you know, always the question is what qualities are going to lead to sense of well-being, sense of happiness? And there's these lists, as I said the other day, generosity, you know, hugely important, renunciation, calmness, collectiveness. Sometimes it's, it can be very attractive to hear teachings of nothing, nothing to uh, make happen, nothing to develop, nothing to cultivate, etc. Nowhere to go, and that's, that is, you know, in a way that's true. And there's a, there's a real, again, heart pull for that kind of teaching. I was talking to someone a little while ago, and they were saying how attractive that had been for them, and they sort of. Uh, went off for a couple of years and stopped meditating and all this. Then they just noticed after a while. Actually, I'm just much happier when I pra- when I meditate. So it's just, are we? Can we make this an experiment and actually be honest with ourselves and not just get attracted to the views that may feel good? So this notion of all we have to do is be with what is. 
you know, hugely beautiful teaching, a hugely important teaching, lovely teaching, but can only ever be part of the path. So we talk about being with what is, and we also talk about letting go. We talk a lot about letting go. But the capacity to let go is helped so much, so much, by what we have cultivated in the way of beautiful qualities. The more that reservoir of well-being and happiness, the more things just, they, it's just easier to let go. And I see this over and over uh, as a teacher, over and over with people, and with myself, you know, in my own practice. I was, uh, someone came in the other day, uh, not, not in this retreat, a little while ago, and um, she had been practicing for 20 years and had, was beginning to feel just quite like this is just the same old stuff over and over. 20 years. And she had put a lot of emphasis on two things. One was this just accepting what is, just being with what is. And the other was uh, very deep teachings about emptiness. Which, and she had a very bright mind which she could have understood. But somehow it hadn't made much difference. And this whole aspect of cultivation, as we were talking, had not been something she'd paid really much attention to at all. And in a way, it, got, it took that level of frustration for her to think, hmm, maybe there's something there. So to me, uh, letting go, freedom, etc., the path, it's like a bird with two wings. The cultivation and the being with what is, the investigation. Only one of those, it's not, you know, bird is not going to get off the ground. So first part of, of right view, first part, a question. Do I know, do I really understand what leads to happiness, what leads to well-being, what leads to, leads to a sense of nourishment? Do I know that, really? Am I sure about that? And am I cultivating it? First part of right view. Do I admit that the, these kind of developments are even possible? So that's part of the view. Do I admit that they're possible? So that's one part of right view, but it place huge emphasis on that. And it's, uh, in a way, we could say like a, lo- a longer-term view. So generally in one's life, move- with all the ups and downs, etc., uh, move- moving towards building these qualities hugely, hugely significant uh, to, have, to be able to have two wings and to, to be able to get off the ground and fly. What about views in the moment? So less long term, but in the moment. Right, right view, in a way to me, right view, this Four Noble Truths business, it's, it's like, it's the view of practice. It's the view that practice is possible. It's the view that freedom is possible, that some degree of freedom is possible with what's going on right now. So w- what do I mean? In our lo- Here, it's a, it's a very precious environment here. We have nothing to do but look at what's going on, nothing to do but examine our experience. In our busy lives, uh, things happen, and they happen at very inconvenient times and in very you know, difficult ways. And that's the nature of our life. How often is it that the situation just seems to need addressing? You know, I need to fix this thing. I need to get my car fixed. I need to sort out my living situation. I need to... Uh, my money situation. My Whatever it is. You know, just those things that become important to us, that have become important to us. 
when something's difficult in the situation, how easy, how often is it that we go to, I just need to, I just need to fix it. I just need to, I just need to sort out my money. I just need to sort out the living situation. I just need to sort out, you know, whatever it is. And that becomes the priority. Address, you know, of course it's important, those things are important, you know, of course they are, to address them and to change what needs to be changed and, and all that. But how often does that become the priority? And the notion of, how can I see this differently? How can I move towards freedom? takes way, way back step, you know, back, backstage. It, it happens all the time, so, so easily, and so, uh, without our even realizing it. So right view, how am I looking at this situation? This situation that seems difficult, this moment that seems difficult, how am I looking at it? What's my view of it? Am I making the possibility of practice, of freedom, a priority? Is that there in my view? And you know, when things are difficult, when the housing is difficult, and the relationship is difficult, and the money is difficult, and, and you know, all that, and this is what we go through, you know, the body is, uh, you know, having difficulties and illness. And uh, what, well, again, what's in the culture, and even in, you know, maybe what's being offered from our friends, you know, of course, to support and empathize and find ways to fix that. Hugely important that that uh, we have empathic friends and that we offer that to others. But is that all that's being offered, or is there a voice? inside or outside that's saying, how can I look at this differently? How can I practice with this? How can I see this so that it moves towards freedom? So things break in the world, you know. Things, physical things break, our bodies break, our cars break, things we use break, relationships break, all of this. <coughs> If when things break, we just see hassle, oh no, hassle, How, what happens then? Or are we seeing in a different way, seeing that's the nature of things, it's the nature of things to break. Anicca, what I talked about the other day, Anicca. And with the Anicca is a whole different view, not that this thing should not break, it should be there for my, make things convenient so I can whatever do whatever I need to do. But maybe another view, it's breaking, yes, this world, this, these things, this world is, is, uh, is not my home. It's not my home. The universe is not created or set up to, to make self uh, happy and contented and to have everything work out the way self, self wants it to be. It's just not set up that way. That's not, that's not the deal. Maybe what's a little bit, uh, you know, we try though to set things up so that, they, so that they'll go exactly the way self wants them. And maybe what's a little bit different nowadays is that we have te technologically and sociologically, etc., we have more, much more of a capacity to actually do that than they did way back. We can actually get quite close to sort of engineering this illusion that everything will just run along smoothly and, for, for, you know, suiting me. But nothing is certain. Nothing is certain. So all that stuff, car, house, uh, body, 
relationship. <coughs> just the other day, a friend uh, went in for a routine me- medical uh, exam and got the doctor called. Sorry, you, some abnormal cells came up. Can you please come in for more tests? And then the wait, and then, then the follow-up test, and this period of time just not knowing. One of my teachers, Ajahn Tanisara, used to say, uh, aging, sickness and death, which we are all subject to, on the Buddha called aging, sickness, death. He used to say, they play hard, and they play for keeps. Are we practicing? Are we practicing? Because that's the stuff that we're going to have to practice with. This body is going to decay, our loved ones are going to decay, they're going to die, we're going to die. Are we practicing? Are we, have we got a momentum of practice that when, uh, you know, when it gets really bad, we, we have a way of looking? We have ways of looking. So, another question, part of right view. What actually is my view right now? What is my view right now of this situation, of this moment, of, of whatever? And is it a view that's leading to freedom? Because if I view this thing breaks, it's a hassle, it's a uh, whatever, that's not helpful. If I view it, can I view it another way that's actually leading to freedom, realizing something different? <clears throat> so. The Buddha talks also about ways of looking, ways of looking that he encourages that actually lead towards freedom. And he talks about looking in terms of what's called the three characteristics, the three characteristics. So these are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and uh, not, not self. Uh, viewing things uh, as impermanence, seeing that fact, like what I talked about the other day, just seeing impermanence, seeing the impermanence of things. So when it breaks, it's uh, anicca, not hassle, not oh no. It's anicca, that's what we're seeing. And seeing that, we, like I said, the, the world is not set up this way, things are not set up this way. There's an uncertainty there, there's an unsatisfactoriness there. It's interesting, you know, sometimes when, when this goes out, and even from some teachers, it's almost like, hear about the three characteristics as something that should uh, make us kind of quake and tremble and feel really bad and depressed and uh, have this kind of existential angst. To me, it's something very different. It's a way of what the, I feel that the Buddha was interested in, was looking, using these three characteristics as lenses, because there's a freedom that comes from that. We just there's a letting go that comes from that, and something very lovely, a very lovely sense of freedom comes. <clears throat> and the not self that uh, that Catherine talked about last night. What would it be to be in the world and be in this existence and move move through the world and really not uh, have a view of ownership of anything or identification with anything? a house, a home, or anything at all, body, completely thought, radically different way of being in the world. So, 
nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. That's the Buddha's encouragement to start seeing in a different way. So with this uh, right view, right questioning, again, it's not really is there a self or is there not a self. The Buddha actually wasn't interested in that question. It's more, can I view this moment, this experience, this whatever is coming up as not me, not mine? Not me, not mine. This sensation in the body, this Vedana, this emotion, this thought, this, uh, this hand that I'm looking at, this apartment that I live in, this car, these clothes. Can I start looking at things and seeing not me, not mine? And begin actually practicing that way of looking. It's really a practice to, to start practicing a certain way of looking because it leads to freedom. Sometimes when people hear this, it's a bit turned off because there's such an attraction to wanting to be with things as they are, or not do anything, not not uh, not manipulate experience in any way. But the truth is that we're we're manipulating experience all the time because this I, mine, me, mine goes on all the time. Sometimes we're conscious of it, sometimes we're not. But that's something we're adding to experience. My this, my that. Or certainly in the terms of story, you can, you can see it on the level when the story gets very strong. We're adding that. But it's, it's even more subtle than that. We're just adding me and mine to experience all the time. What would it be to actually do less and say, not me, not mine, just unhook that. The Four Noble Truths, in a shorthand kind of way of looking, is it's, it's um, again, it's a kind of lens to look at experience. Is there suffering right now? Okay, I feel some discontent, I feel some dis-ease, I feel some contraction. There must be some grasping around. Okay, when there's suffering, it's alerting me. There's some grasping, some push or pull or struggle with what's going on. Can I relax that and recognize that it's possible to be free by relaxing that grasping? So it's, it's almost like a very um, yeah, shorthand kind of way, of way of seeing the Four Noble Truths, shorthand lens of looking at experience. Is there suffering? Okay. Where's the grasping? Look for it. See what you can find. And then is it possible to relax that? So to go through the meditation or the day, life, looking at it this way, As I said, uh, the Buddha, uh, when he talks about second noble truth, it's not just grasping, it's actually quite more complicated than that. And we can even, as practice deepens, begin looking in a much more full way and have a much more full understanding. All the subtle factors in the mind and the heart that are actually uh, leading to building suffering in the moment. So what are they? What would they be? begin really honing in that way, looking that way. What are the subtle factors that are building suffering, actually building the very way things appear, or their appearance themselves? So maybe that sounds abstract right now, so let me go into it. Another question that's involved in right view. 
what am I putting in to the present moment that's leading to suffering? What am I putting in to the present moment that's leading to suffering? So this is not to, when we feel some suffering and some contraction or some difficult emotion or whatever, it's not at all to deny the influence of the past and uh, uh, how, of course, that influences the present. But if we look carefully and really honestly, <coughs> suffering needs some input in the present. It needs us to be seeing or doing or putting something in or reacting a certain way for suffering to happen in the present. Without that present moment input, no, no suffering. So not to, again, not to believe me just because I'm saying it or any other teacher, but just to explore this. Without present moment input, there, can, there is no suffering. Sometimes we're sitting in meditation or, or in our life or whatever, and it, we can feel like something's really coming up, you know, a difficult emotion or something's coming up, and it feels like it's coming up, it's bubbling up from the past. And there's a lot of feeling with that. And maybe some very difficult emotion, some grief or sadness or anger or uh, contraction or whatever it is. And there's the pain of that, and we feel that, and every encouragement to be with that. And then it moves through and it feels like it's released and then it's gone and we feel lighter. Ah. And it really felt like something purified there. Something came up and it, it went out. On one level that's true. At another level, is there something in the present that I'm putting in that's actually creating a whole experience? That maybe there's actually no such a thing as things coming out from the past. It just seems that way. Notion of purification. It just seems that way. At one level, it's, it's very useful to work in that, in that, at that level, in that, in that sense. But as, as, as one goes deeper, to really ask very, very um, probing questions. Is that really what's going on? As I said, practice can never be just being, think, being with things as they are. It can never just be that. Beautiful as that is, uh, and that the beautiful intimacy with experience, with life that comes from that, can only ever be just a part of the practice. A little while ago, I was... Uh, I went to see someone and um, not really a close friend and also not someone I'm in a teaching relationship with <clears throat> and she was having a very hard day that day and she was quite upset and we were talking and she explained a little bit what was going on and, and she explained the difficulty she was having a relationship with her boyfriend at the time and she explained how you know she would say this and he would understand that and they, she thought they had agreed this and he thought they had agreed that and basically this suffering. And then at the end, you know, knowing that I was uh, involved in the Dharma, etc., she said, I know, I know, Rob, I know, I've just got to be with it. I just have to be with it. And I, I didn't actually say anything at the time because I wasn't in a teaching relationship with her, but I actually thought, actually, no, that's not what's needed here. What's needed is looking at how has this suffering been, how has this suffering been built by miscommunication, by not agreeing on uh, understandings together by not, you know, 
It's not just a matter of being with things, being with things, being with things. Actually looking at how suffering is getting built. And a little while ago here, someone was on retreat uh, a few months ago, I think it was, a month or something. And I think it was quite full time at Guy House, I think so. And and, uh, a lot of people had colds as well. And he was coming into the hall meditating and uh, practicing diligently and was sitting next to someone with quite some coughing and, uh, you know, and finding himself getting really irritated with this person that, uh, you know, disturbing his meditation. And there was suffering. Notice, this is suffering. This is suffering. This relationship I have to what's going on is suffering. I feel it. And very wisely, I thought, began, began looking in that practice period, how can I see this differently? How can I see this differently that takes the suffering out of it? And it began using the reflective mind and, and remembering. And this person was coughing and fidgeting and stuff. And, and just remembering, oh yeah, I used to be like that. I used to be very uh, restless and, and unable to sit still. And then this separation that had uh, come in, that was you know, uh, building the suffering, just, he just saw the common humanity. Oh yeah, I used to be exactly the same. It's only because I've been practicing a little longer that I'm able to be a bit more still. Saw the humanity and the suffering went out of it and, and love came and love began to flow there. So are we practicing this kind of investigation, this kind of, um, I don't know, intelligence? So when we say, what am I putting into the present moment? It can be extremely subtle. This goes subtler and subtler and subtler. So if we take up uh, the theme that Catherine talked about last night, this not-self. What happens, you may have noticed this already on the retreat, what happens when there's a lot of self-story about something? You really, the, the mind is just spinning with proliferation of self-story. And then we see that. We say, oh, I don't have to do that. And, and somehow it just goes, the self-story goes. What happens to the experience of what's going on? experience actually lessens in intensity. <clears throat> what happens to experience if I begin to look at it, look at this moment and what's happening through the lens of not me, not mine? It begins to fade, its intensity fades, its prominence in consciousness fades. What happens if I completely let go of all self-identification, not even identified with awareness? I'm not, self is not building any story, it's not identified to any, uh, with any, anything at all, including awareness. The degree of impression or intensity <coughs> of something happening depends on how much self there is, how much self-view there is at that time. If there's no self-identification at all, things actually completely fade from experience. They completely fade. They disappear. They cannot sustain themselves. If there's really, truly, at that moment, no self-identification. So, obviously I'm aware this, this is, uh, is probably not most people's experience right now, but I just want to point a little bit where the practice is going. Potentially, anyway. I'll point out some possibilities, because I think it's... I do feel it's important to point out what the possibilities are. If how 
things appear or whether they appear at all depends on whether I have a self-view. When there's this much self-view, they appear this way. When there's this much, they appear this way. When there's none at all, they maybe don't appear at all. Which is the real amount? Which is the real amount of the way things are? Which is things as they are, this phrase that's so lovely and that we're you know, so fond of? Which is things as they are? Which amount of self is the real amount of self through which to look at experience? Self-view, any kind of self-view is a builder of experience. It's, a bu- it's what the Buddha called exactly that, a builder of experience. A view of self uh, builds our experience. So where, where does all that, what, where do, what does all that mean? Where does it lead? Follow no paths. All paths lead where? Truth is here. And I remember reading that as a teenager and feeling very, ah, oh, that's, that's, you know, right on, that's, that's lovely. And, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> that was actually worth <laughs> um, But again, are, are we really interested in truth? Are we really interested in truth and not just this nice feeling of what might feel nice? So it has this part pull, but what this teaching, if we're really following this question of view and noble truth and, and, and the noble truths, there's no here either. Truth is here, but there is no here. I can't find it. Follow no paths. All paths lead where? Truth is here. And I remember reading that as a teenager and feeling very, ah, oh, that's, that's, you know, right on, that's, that's lovely. And, and <laughs> um, <laughs> that was actually worth um, But again, are, are we really interested in truth? Are we really interested in truth and not just this nice feeling of what might feel nice? So it has this part pull, but what this teaching, if we're really following this question of view and noble truth and, and, and the noble truths, there's no here either. Truth is here, but there is no here. I can't find it. What is here? There, here is completely not existing, independent of the view I have of it. There's no here, no now. That's also just a concept that depends on view. No here, no now. And that's not to say that truth is there, some other there either. Again, sometimes we have notions of nowhere to go, nothing to do. And again, that's very lovely and that it can really speak to us. And at certain junctures of the path, it can be actually very liberating, very healing and very helpful to hear that. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. And it's like, oh, goodness. And it can actually open a lot and open the heart a lot. But how much integrity do we have of the of the ongoing journey of the questioning? So it is true, ultimately speaking, there is nowhere to go and nothing to do. But 
for most people, what that means is hearing that, nowhere to go, nothing to do, and we come back to what? Me here with the, the world as it is, and emotions and thoughts and feelings. And that's not true either. That's not we're giving the world and the self and all of that a kind of reality which it doesn't have. So our view has not gone deep enough at that point. And then another sort of one that we can feel very attracted to. Um, just want to be, don't want to do, being versus doing. So much doing in the world. Just want to be. And again, you know, can be hugely helpful and important. But if we're really following, we see the subtlest view, the subtlest view at all, is a kind of building of experience. And building is doing. So this whole duality between being and doing turns out to be a complete uh, non-event, really. It's just, it's not real. <clears throat> and again, I, some, I'm not, not probably here, but uh, people who come on retreat, but sometimes one, one uh, meets people and they say, I'm not really into meditation. Relationship is my path, or parenting is my path, or dancing is my path, or you know, I play the cello or whatever. And all these things are beautiful, beautifully, uh, uh, beautiful parts of of human existence. You know, really lovely. Uh, potentially, some of them, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> some of the time. <laughs> And sometimes, even in the midst of this dancing or you know whatever it is, making love and and uh, and, uh, and playing music or whatever, sometimes even the self disappears. And we say, yeah, that make, that's really spiritual, then you know. But can this activity, whatever it is we're taking as a path, can it lead to that same understanding what I just talked about? That it's it's all uh, empty. It it goes beyond this. This agenda practice does have an agenda. You know, it does have an agenda. And it's, it's to understand that. And can what I'm taking to be practice, can it take me to that level or not? And if it can't, then, well, you know, it may be a lovely part of existence, but it, it basically won't do as, as, as a sort of ultimate, ultimately deep practice. So right view. Buddha talks about right view. One way of stating that, and it's, it's going to sound maybe quite strong, I don't know. If there is suffering, if there is dukkha, discontent, it means I'm actually seeing with ignorance right now. If there is suffering, it means I'm seeing wrongly. And that may sound pretty hardcore, I think it is pretty hardcore. And it, I don't mean it in any judgmental way, and of course... Um, you know, not for a second to to uh, abdicate ourselves from responsibility for what goes on in the world in terms of <clears throat> economic and social conditions of, of others, etc. Oh, well, they just need to view it differently, whatever. You know, not at all saying that for a second. But at, at a whole other level in terms of our practice, when there's suffering, it means that we're looking wrongly. So I remember Joseph Goldstein, uh, one of the senior teachers, saying, I think it was years ago, I remember him saying, when there's suffering, that kind of tweaks my interest. That's when I... <laughs> you see, you have to be quite... I've done quite a lot of practice when at that point. It's like, oh, no, no. <laughs> but I remember him saying, I think it was quite a long time ago. I don't remember even where it was. But when there's suffering, it's like the suffering is telling me 
ah, I need to look at something differently. I need to see it differently. So the question, again, the question of right view, what do I need to understand about how suffering arises? What do I need to understand about that? How is suffering being built in the present? How is suffering being built? And is it possible to remove some of the builders? You know, like, um, I don't know the name of it, like that game where you put sticks and you build a thing and then you pull. Or a house, <laughs> a house of cards, you know. Suffering is being built like that and we can just put, remove some of the things. So, I don't know. Maybe all that sounds very complex, too. I don't know. Maybe it does. But again, you know, another view that can uh, creep in or that we can feel very attracted to, truth is so simple. And we, lo we love the simplicity. And it's a relief because often our lives are very complicated. Some people are really attracted towards complexity. And they want all this Buddhist psychology and theories and Abhidharma and, and all this. Most of us are hungering for a kind of simplicity. And, and we feel very attracted to simplicity and the beauty of that. But maybe the truth is not complex and not simple. Maybe those are just our particular preconceptions or desires. And it has nothing to do, it's not even in that realm. We might say, truth is beyond concepts. It's beyond concepts, so let's just ditch concepts. But what happens if we ditch concepts too early is we just end up with our the same old default concepts. Self, world, thing, emotion, time, uh, thought, you know, all of it. Me, you, here, there. So to me, one of the huge, um, really profound skills of the Buddha was to take a few concepts and say, pick up these concepts, use these concepts, because they will lead to freedom. They are concepts that lead to freedom, and they also lead beyond concept. They lead beyond themselves. It's enormously skillful teaching when you when you really start to see that happening. <clears throat> so, this these four noble truths, that view has the capacity of really, uh, really leading to a completely radical, radically different understanding of things, completely something utterly, utterly radical, this understanding of emptiness. And it even has the capacity to transcend itself. So it goes, goes beyond notions of a path, goes beyond notions of time, or, or uh, goes beyond notions even of suffering and freedom, completely goes beyond itself. So the Buddha did say, actually, uh, something like one who has seen emptiness has let go of all views has let go of all views one who has seen emptiness but it's it's uh, not to let go too early because there are views and for noble truth that, that kind of view that's actually leading towards freedom and to ask ourselves is uh, are my views leading towards freedom the Buddha does talk, you know, many, many of you are familiar with the analogy of <coughs> uh, letting the raft go once one has reached the other shore. But uh, not too early. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.